I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 28 to verse 34 this morning. But before we read, just wanted to mention we are beginning a brand new series today titled Better. Everybody say better. Better. We're talking about how we know Christ more in the year ahead. As I was preparing this message, a thought hit me at the outset. And it's this idea that there are few occasions that reveal a person's greatest priorities more so than when they have to choose between two or more things that they might value most. You can tell what matters to a person when they are forced or they have to make a choice. Give you an example, when you know a disaster is coming and you're told that you need to make a decision as to what you're gonna take with you and that the only thing you can take with you is what will fit in your car. What are you going to take? You look at your house, you look at your furniture, you look at your clothes, you look at your jewelry, you look at your, your albums, you look at your whatever. What can you take, what will you take to fit into your car? Millions of Floridians faced this same decision as Hurricane Ian was bearing down on the Gulf Coast in September of 2022. In October of the same year, many of those same residents were again faced with this decision even as Hurricane Nicole was barreling toward the Florida coast. At the same time this was happening, you remember in the news, there was wildfires raging in the West Coast. Washington, Colorado, California, other states were having to deal with evacuation orders because there were fires headed in their direction. A group of Floridians were interviewed during the hurricane season that particular year, 2022, and they were asked what it was that they uh, took with them, what, what, what influenced their decision to take what it was they took. One particular Floridian, name undisclosed, was quoted as saying, we are a family of five with a pet dog. We took several non-electronic games, building blocks for our youngest child, portable electronics for the teenagers, you can't forget the teenagers, <laughs> We also packed several pairs of clothes per person, toiletries, laundry, soap to minimize incidental expenses. We took work laptop, we took the dog's bed, pet food, and non-recoverable paper documents. One lady, another lady from Florida, also gave the following list. She said, my husband and I took our five guinea pigs, two cats, along with their cages and a litter box. We brought our medication, clothes, pillows, blankets, and some food and sodas. I wish I had taken my jewelry. Yet another woman wrote, I did not take anything of sentimental value for a few reasons. Because being a Navy spouse, I've learned long ago to detach myself sentimentally from things, for the most part. Moving often fairly, moving fairly often, excuse me, she said you have to let go of stuff. We're talking about priorities this morning. I came across an article written by a well-known human behavior expert named Dr. John DiMartini. He wrote an article in which he writes that every human being whether subconsciously or consciously, moment by moment we live by a unique set of priorities and values, every single one of us. Ultimately, DiMartini argued, it is those values based on what we consider to be most important or least important that then determines how we perceive things around us, how we decide and how we act. In other words, whether you and I recognize it or not, there is what I call a whole being. Everybody say a whole being. A whole being response that is based on what we value most or least. For me, when I was growing up, and I'm sure those of you that have sons will relate, 
When I was a child, I didn't need any motivation to play video games. In fact, my father had to hide our video games in the house. That's how bad I had it. And I would find every opportunity to search for those video games, play them to my heart's content, and pretend like I had not touched the video game in months. My father was clueless until my brother opened his mouth one day and he spilled the beans and I got in serious trouble. But when I was a kid growing up, I loved video games. You didn't need to motivate me to play video games. You didn't have to ask me twice. But when it came to my chores, when it came to my homework, when it came to doing what I was supposed to do, sometimes they would have to resort to making threats just to get me to do what I was supposed to do. The reason why one thing was not as important versus another was because of the value I placed on it. Video games, to me, were everything. If I could get paid playing video games, that would be the ultimate job, right? That's my perception. But the more important things, the things that teach me discipline, that teach me character, that teach me uh, right values, right practices, those things, for whatever reason, I just kind of saw is not important. And so naturally, my actions, my decisions demonstrated that. We tend not to give too much attention, thought, or energy to the things we don't value. But by the same token, we rarely ever think twice about spending ourselves fully in the things that we do value. Now, for those who place their faith and trust in Christ, you will agree with this. We are constantly confronted with this temptation to replace devotion to Christ with devotion to something or someone else. Do you agree? Do you agree? Every single day, every single day, is an opportunity to choose to either keep Christ on the throne or to take him off the throne and put something else. And I'm not suggesting this morning that if that happens, that it's because you don't love the Lord. Here's the thing. It is something that we all struggle with and we all have to pay attention to. Keeping Christ on the throne of our hearts does not happen automatically. It involves choice. It involves the exercise of the will based on our careful consideration of what is most important. So we choose to keep Christ on the throne because we recognize that nothing else belongs on the throne of my heart other than He. But again, there are times where we make that subconscious decision based on what we value most to inadvertently take Him off the throne because in our minds, in that moment at least, something else seems to be more important to us than He is. In the context of today's message, and in the text we're about to read, we're going to see an expert in the, in the ancient Mosaic law, a law that was known at that time to govern both the civic as well as the religious matters or the lifestyles of the people of Israel, come to Christ with what I feel is probably the most important question that any person has ever asked Jesus. Now, of course, prior to this interaction, Jesus, in the beginning of Mark chapter 12, has just had this exchange with some Sadducees. The Sadducees were part of the religious establishment. There were two groups of religious um, uh, individuals, religious entities at that time, the Pharisees, who were kind of the priests in the temple. They were kind of, I guess, the equivalent of pastors today. Not that I'm saying pastors are Pharisees. That's not what I'm suggesting. But what I'm saying is this was the role they played. They were the priests in the temple. They served the, the spiritual needs of the people. The Sadducees did a little bit of both, but they tended to be more intellectual. They tended to be more philosophical, philosophical types. Um, in fact, one of the notable beliefs that Sad the Sadducees had was that there was no, um, that there was no, there was no um, heaven. Sadducees do not believe that there is a heaven. That aside, these Sadducees come to Jesus and they argue with Jesus about marriage. 
they throw a scenario at Jesus. This man was married to this woman, he died, and as custom has it, his brother marries the woman, but then the brother dies, and then the third brother comes in, he marries the woman, and then he dies. And then it goes on and on until all seven brothers are dead. You start to wonder, what's wrong with this woman? <laughs> right? Um, but the, the Sadducees are asking Jesus, when this woman gets to heaven, whose husband is she going who's, who's, to whom is she going to be married to? The first one or the seventh one? And Jesus essentially kind of, he makes, he kind of, he dismisses the response, essentially suggesting to these men that they're focused on the wrong thing. That there's more things that matter than that. You're focused on something that is not important, not, not, not necessary for you to focus on. And of course, the scripture tells us that this scribe who is witnessing this argument is in agreement with Jesus. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 28. I apologize, I thought I was there, but I guess not. Mark chapter 28. Oh, Mark, Mark chapter 12, excuse me. And if you don't have your Bible, the words are on the screen behind me. If you do have your Bible, go ahead and read with me. Verse 28, this is what the scribe says. One of the scribes came up and heard them arguing and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, let me, let me read verse 30 and then I'll, I'll say something. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Let me stop there for just a moment because... You hear that, you read that, you're thinking Jesus gave two responses. It sounds like he gave two responses, but no, he gave one. What he did is, before he gives them the second instruction, second point, he prefaces the second, second statement by making the first. He says the condition or the foundation for your response in verse 30 is who God is, how he describes him in verse 29. He says, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So in essence, Christ is saying that in order for you to, in verse 30, respond as he describes, you must first acknowledge that God is God. You cannot respond to God as you should if you don't know him as he is. If your view of God is, is obstructed by distortion or lies or mistruth, friend, then you don't know God. We know God through his word. We don't speculate on who God is or what he's like. And, and we dare not try to embrace a view of God that is counter to what scripture tells us. It is this idea that our response to God is based on our perception of who God is. So he says, the Lord is our God. Hear Israel, the Lord is one. And so in response to this foundational truth, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then in verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, well said teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And then no one dared any longer to question him. We wonder why. <laughs> Maybe they were afraid of what he would say. Maybe they were afraid of how he would respond. But the reality was in this, this momentary exchange, Jesus lays down for his listeners, but for us as well, a very powerful truth. This idea that the most important things that, thing that matters in the midst of all of the different things that could matter, that may matter to us, that loving God is the most important thing. And that it is the foundation for how we are called to live. And I dare say how we are called to respond to God. Loving him is the response Christ gives to this question of what is most important. Another way of looking at the same question is to rephrase it by saying what is the most important thing in life. Jesus' response was focused. It was, it was to the point. He said you love God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength. Why? Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters. If you genuinely believe that God is your God, everybody say, God is my God. If you genuinely believe that God, Abba Father, that He is your God, then you will believe that He deserves nothing less than a whole being devoted response to Him. If you believe that God is your God, then you recognize and you will acknowledge that he deserves nothing less than a whole being affection from you. This is what Jesus meant when he said we are to love God. And we love him best by expressing affection for him with our entire being. And so in these next few minutes, I want to talk about how we love God best with our whole being, with our whole heart, with our whole mind, and with our whole strength. First, we love God with our whole heart by regarding him as the source and the object of our deepest desires. Here's what it means to regard God as the source and center or object of your deepest desires. It is to, is to recognize that the core of your affection is centered around who God is. That your affection, your deepest desires, your longings is not centered on you. It's not about me, myself, and I, what I want, what I will, what I desire. The Bible makes it clear that when you and I came to faith in Christ, we were no longer our own. We belonged to Him. And because we belong to him, now he is the center of our world. I can tell you that before I came to faith in Christ, I did a great job of being the center of my own world. Every decision I made, every choice I made was, was centered around me. What I wanted, what I liked, what I desired. And it didn't matter how it affected my neighbor, it didn't matter how it affected others around me. I was focused on me. But that changed when I came to faith in Christ. When I came to faith in Christ, I began to focus on Him. And the reality is, is that every single one of us, when we come to faith in Christ, the same happens to us. Where we are called, as it were, Jesus says, if anyone will follow me, he must what? Deny. Everybody say deny. deny. He says we are to deny ourselves. Take up our cross and we follow Him. In other words, I no longer become the core of the center of my, of my affections. He is. So part of what it means to love God with all of our hearts, to regard him as the source and object of our deepest desires, is that we make him the core of our affections. That our love for him is fueled by our understanding of the love that God has demonstrated to us. The Bible makes it clear that we love him because he first loved us. Our love is meant to be a response to him. We didn't initiate relationship with God. God initiated relationship with us. While we were still sinners, while we were, we were so far removed in our minds and our hearts to the concept of a relationship with God, the Bible says it is God that pursues. 
It is God that reaches out to us. It is God that longs for relationship and invites us to relationship with him. And so because we know and we've experienced God's love and it's transforming our lives, we're able to respond in kind to love him as well. But it also means that his pleasures are what define my desires. That, that, that my motivation is that choices that I make, decisions that I make, the way that I live, it's all centered around a desire to please him. When I was growing up as a young person, you know, the phrase WWJD was very popular growing up. What would Jesus do? It was this idea that before you made a decision, you made a choice. Ask the question, if Jesus were in my shoes, how would he respond? What would he say? What would he do? How would he act? And it was meant to be more than just a slogan, a, a catchphrase that became popular or was a fad. It was meant to be a, 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 a way to galvanize us to begin to think in terms of if we say that we are Christians or followers of Christ, we should be constantly mindful of how we are living in light of who God is. If we say we love God, friends, then he has to be the object of our deepest desires. Not our flesh, not our will, not our own desires, or not even what the world says should be our priorities. I love how Joshua put it in Joshua 22, verse 5. This is the same man who succeeded Moses. The Bible says, when God told Moses he would not be the one to bring the people of Israel to the promised land, but that it would be Joshua instead. Joshua did fulfill that assignment. And the Bible tells us that at the tail end of his life, Joshua, as he's recounting all that God has done under his leadership to impact the people of Israel and to settle them in the land of promise, he makes a charge to the people of Israel where he calls them to in this land of promise to not forget the God who brought them there. To not lose sight of the one who has made all of this possible. And this is how he says they are to respond. In verse 5 he says, Be very careful to follow the commandment and the law which Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you. To do what? To love the Lord your God and walk in his ways. To keep his commandments and to cling to him. And to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. What is Joshua saying? This is what he's describing to you and I. He's saying that the best way we demonstrate our love for God is this. That we choose to walk in relationship with him. That we walk in fellowship with him. That we, you, that we, that we, that we keep his commandments because we recognize that his word is, as the psalmist said, a lap unto my feet, a light to my path. That I will not know the way I'm supposed to live or where I'm supposed to go outside of knowing God's will for my life. And that we cling to him almost as if, as if, as if, as if, as if it were for dear life. Not wanting to let go of God because we recognize, God, I cannot go forward without you. I cannot live, I cannot function without you. I need you in my life. And that we recognize that our lives are meant to serve his purpose. When your thoughts, your desires and actions are motivated by your love for God and appreciation for all God has done to bring you and I into a right relationship with him, then we are loving God with our whole being. But that's not all. Jesus said there's the aspect of loving God with all of your soul. And how, how we do that? By focusing our longings, our emotions, and our convictions on honoring Christ. Here's what it means to do so. God calls you and I to see our lives as wrapped up in who Christ is. In other words, that we see ourselves as not separate from Christ. We are joined to Christ. We are grafted into Christ. Our identity is one with Christ. We are committed because of that identity to then deepen in our connection with him. And the reason why is because this, friends. Think about this. The deeper, I mean, the degree of change, excuse me, in you is directly tied to the degree of influence you are allowing him to have on your life. God's desire is that as you and I know him and as we walk in him, with him, that our lives more and more reflect his presence, power, and influence in us. We are meant to grow. We are meant to deepen our walk with him. 
We're not meant to remain uh, baby Christians to where we have to be spoon-fed everything. But God desires that we are maturing in our faith. That, that, that through the sum of our experiences and the challenges that we face and the lessons that God is teaching us as we walk in relationship with Him, that we are growing in our walk with Christ. That now, rather than simply catering to it, to seeking to be fed, that now God is using us to now feed others. That we're invested in the work of building God's kingdom. We're invested in, in the lives of others and sowing in other people's lives and, and, and being a spiritual influence in other people's lives. God's desire is that you and I be so committed to him that we are willing to say, God, every part of me is focused on honoring you. And this is why Galatians 2.20 tells us, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ. Everybody say Christ. Paul says, it is Christ who now lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The third thing Jesus says we do to love God is with our whole minds, and that's by deliberately aligning our thoughts and our actions according to his word. Here's what that means. That we acknowledge that serving Christ goes beyond mere feelings and emotions. I did not follow Christ because I had an emotional reaction. I had a thoughtful understanding of what sin is, of what sin does to a relationship with God, and what sin that did to my relationship with God, or the prospect of a relationship with Christ. And I consciously, deliberately made a decision to say, I will walk away from a life of sin. I will embrace the life that Christ desires for me. Yes, it was a, a, a hard decision, but it was a decision of the mind as well, because it involved the exercise of my will. I always tell people, friends, you do not check your will at the door when you're following Christ. Because Christ doesn't make us choose him. He invites us to choose him. But ultimately, it's still our choice. God is a gentleman. He won't force you to choose him. He lays for you the opportunity that he has set for you, but he invites you to make a choice. It involves an exercise of our will to say, God, I recognize that following you requires that I will make sacrifices. That following you means that I will give up sin. The things that bring pleasure, the things that may have brought satisfaction to my life, I will give those things up. Why? Because as Paul says, I am willing to consider all of these things rubbish because I know what I gain in, in knowing Christ. We believe, we must believe that the prescription for living out our God-given purpose is found in the pages of the Bible because we believe that God's word is timeless and truthful. And in, doing, in, knowing, in knowing the reliability of the scriptures, that we then engage God's word so that as we grow in our understanding of God's plan and purpose for our lives, that our lives become that living proof that God's word is true. You realize that the proof of God's word, the reliability of God's word is your life and my life. When a watching world sees the word lived out in us, it proves to them that God's word is true. That God's word will not return void. That what God has said he would do, he would do. And that he has proven that he would do what he says he would do. Why? Because he's doing it in you. He's doing it in me. Again, it's not that we are perfect people or that we have everything working out in our lives. No, but when the world sees us, they see that the teachings, again, remember, Christian, the word Christian was used to refer to people who were living out the teachings of Christ. When the world watches us, what do they see? What message are we conveying to them? Do they see by our actions, our thoughts, that we have aligned ourselves with who God is and what he desires for us? Why? Because we love him with all of our mind. 
Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then in verse 2, he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, do not, be, do not, do not allow the traditions, the customs, the values of this world, which are opposite of God's values, to shape who you are. But instead, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that it is indeed good and acceptable and perfect. But here's the last aspect of, being, of the whole being response. It is to love God with all of our strength. How we do that is by applying our best energy and effort into serving God's divine purpose. Do you believe that God has a purpose for your life? I believe God has a purpose for my life. I believe God has a purpose for your life. A divine purpose. A purpose that, that nobody can challenge, nobody can, can get in the way of when you have committed yourself to him and to living out the purpose he has for you. Nobody can stop the purpose of God. I believe God has a purpose for every single one of us. God has a calling that he has placed on our lives. Our response to that calling, brother and sister, is to give our best energy and our best effort into serving that purpose. Why? Because we recognize that it is in serving our divine purpose that God is best glorified in our lives. We must learn to choose to depend on God for the courage and strength as we live each and every single day, and especially more so when we are faced with those difficult decisions that confront or challenge our resolve to live for Christ, that we say, God, not my strength, not by my, not by my power, not by my strength, but by your spirit, Father, I will be bold and I will be courageous and I will live a life that is pleasing to you. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, By grace you and I have been saved through faith. This is not our own doing, but it is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that anyone can boast, but we are, brother and sister, God's workmanship. In other words, God is, what, what is happening in our lives is a consequence of what he is doing. I am who I am, not because of what I've done or what I'm doing. I am who I am because Christ is working in me. He's working in me to transform me, to conform me to his image, to help me to be aligned with his will, to be, with his purpose and plan. Why? Because Paul says we have been created for good works, works that God prepared. God determined the works that he would have us to do, those who are called by his name, so that we might walk in them. When you're committed to applying your life towards serving God's purpose, friend, that's how you love God with your whole being. That's how you love God with your whole being. I want to invite the worship team to come back on stage and join me. As we prepare to close this message, I just want to again remind you that when Christ was asked the question of what mattered most, his response was, you love God above all else. We're in a brand new year, and with a brand new year comes a great deal of potential, great opportunities, new opportunities, new experiences. We don't know what the year has in store. We don't know what all is coming, but what we do know is that our Heavenly Father is reliable. Our Heavenly Father is trustworthy. Our Heavenly Father is faithful. And we will make a commitment, brothers and sisters, to follow His lead as He takes us into the future that He has prepared for us. But as we contemplate what it is that matters most in our lives, not only today, but every single day, I want to ask you this question. Is there something or someone that may be competing for the Lordship that Christ deserves in your heart and life? 
is something or someone sitting on the throne of your heart where Christ is meant to be. We would do well to decide who we are going to serve. I echo what Joshua said to the people of Israel. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. But then he closes by saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Make that your commitment every single day. Father, I choose you today. I choose you every day. I choose to love you. I choose to live for you. I choose to serve you. I choose to be devoted to you. I choose to be committed to you. I choose to experience your best. I choose to live out your purpose and plan. I choose you. See Christ as your sole source and object. Seek to honor him and make that your main concern. Surrender your intellect to him, your thoughts, your actions. Give it all to him and serve his purpose and plan.